Um, all right, we're talking about friendship, the art of friendship. And I love this design by David Pappenhagen, one of our parishioners and an artist, a graphic artist. And it conveys um, a kind of mosaic. It, it, it evokes mosaic. And that is just the people of God in all of our difference, diversity, different sizes, shapes, colors, and all one, though. There's a beautiful whole, but you can also see the distinctiveness of each. Um, so many thanks to David for bringing the ideas of this weekend into visual beauty. Um, we also are going to be, um, in a minute, hearing from Aaron Moniz right here is our retreat, our weekend speaker, talking about friendship and what that looks like, spiritual friendship, friendship in the church, friendship among believers. And um, I'm going to talk about friendship with Jesus to kind of lay a foundation and then hand it over to Aaron from here. And we'll have a couple of sessions with her. And then tomorrow, Aaron will finish with the Sunday morning sermon also being tied into the theme to kind of bring a, a closure to the weekend. So let's look for just a moment at this topic of friendship with Jesus. You know, Israel was asked, uh, probably the most common words that would come out of their mouth is something called the Shema, that the Lord is one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And over and over and over, they would repeat that. It's the best-known, well-rehearsed phrase. It was a, the summary of, of the law. And you could go with that even a little bit further to reduce it. It's hard to reduce the Christian life perhaps any further than two words. As Christians, we might ask ourselves, what actions do we do as Christians? What does it mean to live in action as Christians? Or how do we spend our time in order to fill this Shema? Where is our attention to be focused, our energy? What's the defining feature of my life? What's the mark of what it means that I am a Christian? And if you had to bring that down to two words, it would, you couldn't go any further than love God. Those two words. Love God. That's at the core, at the center of it all. But that leaves a lot of questions still. How do you do that? What does that look like? And the question that springs to mind is like, okay, love God, and that's, that's really at the heart of, of that Shema, and then Jesus' great, greatest commandment. How do we do that? Y'all know that uh, about a year ago, this time, I was returning from a sabbatical and um, I read just a ton during sabbatical in ways I just don't usually have the time to read. And um, one of the books that I read was a book called Waiting for God by Simone Weil. And I loved it. It became an instant top ten for me. And I've read it again since sabbatical. And um, it's just, I, I, it's one of those I feel like I could go to um, another five or six times just periodically through life. But she is looking at this question of how do we love God? And in that, she says there are some ways that, um, that we can do that here on earth. A little bit about her, by the way. She's a 20th century French mystic philosopher, Christian activist. Um, and she just kind of brings all of that into her, her writings here. But she addresses the fact that we can't actually love God in the way we love each other. It's as, as one human to another embodied human, there are ways like with words that are audible that we can love each other, with actions and deeds that are very practical and physical ways we can love each other. We can't love God 
in that way, in the way that we love each other as embodied beings. There is a time that we will be able to love him when we see him face to face, an immediate love, no, nothing mediating the love. It'll be us and God face to face. He says, in the, she says, in the meantime, we can love him implicitly. We can love him through some other things that we do and love. We are implicitly then able to love God until we can behold him face to face. So these implicit loves, they are destined to become ultimately the love of God in his immediate presence. It will be, those loves will be transfigured into a love that is for the one God face to face someday. Ultimately, she says, these are all one love that we're exercising. So do you get the distinction between the implicit and the immediate face-to-face ways of loving God? Here's what she says about the implicit. Says the implicit love of God can only have three immediate objects. The only three objects here below where God really is, although only secretly present. Those are, and she lists the three things, what she calls religious ceremony, by which she means liturgy, worship, and sacrament, the gathered people of God doing what the gathered people of God do in liturgy, worship, and sacrament. She's using the term phrase religious ceremony for that. The beauty of the world is the second one, and our neighbor is the third. Now, what's interesting as I was reading this is that she lists these three. She says these are the only three things that are really this kind of implicit way to love God, and they're ultimately the same. But to these three loves, she then writes, she's like she can't help herself at this point. To these three loves, we should perhaps add friendship. Strictly speaking, she says, it is distinct from love of neighbor. So friendship really, our friends are our neighbors, but there's something what she's saying so special about friendship that she calls it out from being merely a subset of love of neighbor and says, we might want to actually make a fourth one here and put this alongside the other three because that's how big a deal it is as one of the ways that we implicitly love God. During this time in which we don't see God face to face, can't love him in that immediate kind of way, one of the ways we can love him is through friendship. So we're going to be talking about the art of friendship the rest of the weekend. But this morning, again, starting by laying the foundation that Christian friendship with each other starts with this love for God, this friendship, in fact, with God. John 15, verse 15, Jesus says this, our gospel reading was John 14, And there's this long, John takes more time describing what happens at the Last Supper, where Jesus is, he's basically having dinner with his friends. And there's this long conversation that he has over dinner with his friends, and John takes more time giving us that friendship conversation that he has. And here is one of the things that Jesus says in the middle of that conversation with them. He says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Now, Jesus has brought us into 
into his relationship with the Father is what he's saying. Everything that I, what, everything I share with the Father, everything I know from the Father, I'm sharing with you and I'm bringing you up into my relationship with the Father. Everything I learned from my Father, he says, I've made known to you. Therefore, you're friends. Servants don't know what their masters know. Masters don't share everything in the same kind of way as friends do with their servants. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit this morning to reframe for you, for me, for us, how we think of Jesus, to open our eyes to good news that is really good. And I think friendship with Jesus captures some of that. Some of us have, a, some of us have this idea that the gospel goes something like this. Now follow me here for a second. You've done bad things. You deserve punishment for those things. Jesus took the punishment for you. Your job is now to show him how thankful you are for his sacrifice by being obedient and doing what he tells you. Don't screw up again or you'll push God away. But if you do disobey, Jesus took the punishment for that too. Tell God what you did and he'll come back to you. Now, try again not to screw up, <laughs> but if you do, and then the cycle keeps going, and that's just kind of like, there's the Christian life, the summary, there's the gospel. Does that feel like good news? That is not the gospel. The thing is, we kind of start to believe that it is because it does contain truth. It's not like every, every aspect of that is just false. It, there's truth in there, but there's an entire way of, of framing what relationship with God. In fact, let me, let me backtrack, not relationship. What I just described to you is a transactional kind of relation to God. It's not a relational relation to God, where there's just these series of transactions, our doing bad, God doing good for us, us being sorry for doing bad, you know, just this kind of transactions that just kind of go back and forth throughout life and following that cycle as opposed to a, a living relationship that is a friendship with God. So that's what we, I, I want to cast some vision for this morning. John fifteen fifteen is incredible news that Jesus calls us Friends. One theologian, Frederick Bauerschmidt, he teaches theology at Loyola University in Maryland, and, um, and he writes some about life with God, and he has this great book that's just kind of a summary of, of the gospel, and it's so fresh, and what the good, what the, what the life looks like in Christ. As a theology professor, he teaches a class on the moral life. And, you might, and it's called moral theology in academic terms. So he teaches this class on the moral life or moral theology and what a good life looks like personally, what a good life looks like, but also what it looks like to live a life for the common good. That's the moral life. That's moral theology. And he says this, the most important moral decisions you will ever make, are you listening? That's, a, that, that's just right there, sets it up for, he's about to say something that, that is like you can build your life upon it. The most important moral decisions you will ever make are who your friends will be. 
Isn't that interesting? He doesn't go to any principles. He doesn't explicate any kind of like abstract truths, theological concepts even. He's saying the most important moral decisions you will ever make are who your friends will be. Now this, the first friend to choose is Jesus. There's an ancient monastery that was discovered in the 20th century. It's on the west bank of the Nile in Egypt. And time had buried this monastery. And it was discovered by some French archaeologists. And they excavated this old monastery. And they found, you know, underground, as they excavated an entire room. And in that room were some old icons. Like a room full of, of objects and artifacts and Um, there were a number of icons in that room. One of them is dated to the 8th century. And it's still visible and beautiful and preserved. But what's interesting is to think about this. At the time, we're talking about 8th century, 1,300 years ago, in Egypt, what did Christians think the Christian life was about? How did they, in a, in a society that was not literate, where not everybody read, it was a very visual society, icons were often what taught the gospel. And so people would reflect on who God is through imagery more than word in these societies. There was no printing press. There was no book. Most people didn't read. What did people think that the Christian life was all about? So this icon was then, you know, dusted off and, and restored and all of that. It's now in the Louvre in Paris, France, and, um, and it's become one of the, probably the best known artifact from that archaeological site. I saw a reproduction of it that was like this big, the actual thing's about this big, that's like this big, actually in France at Tézé. Y'all probably heard me talk about Tézé. It's a monastery in France that um, where thousands and thousands of young people, mostly 18 to 35, travel from around Europe on a kind of spiritual quest or pilgrimage, and they know, and many of them not even Christian, that there's something holy happening at this place, and the monks, the brothers there, invite them to come, and they just feed them for a week. People sleep in tents. They have some bunk houses, and literally thousands of people per month kind of come through and worship with these brothers. In the sanctuary of worship is an this icon that I'm telling you about that was found in Egypt, and um, it's called Jesus and Friend. So, I've ordered um, Christchurch has ordered enough of these icon images, and literally from Teze in France for this morning and for you. So, look on your table and open up the envelope. And everybody, grab one of those icons. One commentator on this icon reflects on the silence found in the icon. And, uh, and he says, which is also found in many icons, is that you can almost feel the silence. Christ and his friend have their mouths closed. The friend, however has ears, and they're kind of prominent, but you don't see Jesus' ears. We are primarily to be listeners to God. 
There's a silence in the icon, a kind of prayerful silence where not a word is spoken, but there's touch. Mother Teresa was asked what her secret was, and she said, my secret is simple, I pray. So someone asked her what she said when she prayed, and she said, nothing, I listen. So the interviewer asked, okay, when you pray, what does God say? And Mother Teresa answered, nothing, he listens. (laughs) There's something that that captures about what prayer is often like. We do use words, but there's also this kind of intimacy that doesn't need words. And this icon captures some of that intimacy, the, the mutual listening between Jesus and friend. Now I want you to look at it with another kind of view. This is a picture of Jesus and you. Imagine that's you. Jesus is standing there. He's just got his arm around you. Neither of you are talking, but that's you in the picture. And imagine, just like imprint upon your mind's eye the fact that that picture of Jesus and you with his arm around you, that is real reality. That's what's really happening right now. And it is real reality every single second of your life. No matter what's going on, what you're doing, you might be doing something that you're really ashamed to be doing or later are ashamed that you did. In the middle of your very sin, Jesus, standing silently, feel his touch on your shoulder. You might feel abandoned, neglected, hurt, afraid. Jesus standing right there with his hand on your shoulder. That is what's truly true and really real every moment, every breath that you take, no matter what's going on inside you or what you're doing with your words, thoughts, or body. Jesus, with his arm around you, never changes. Towards the end of the wasteland, T.S. Eliot, he writes, Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up at the white road, there's always another one walking beside you. Callistos where. It reflects on the, on this poem, and and he looks has looked in some of the background and some of T. S. Eliot's notes on that stanza right there, and that white road and that reference is a reference to Shackleton. Anybody familiar with Shackleton's voyage and exploration expedition to the South Pole? Incredible story. Let me read to you what Callistos Ware says. He explains in the notes that he has in mind, Eliot has in mind the story told of Shackleton's Antarctic expedition, how the party of explorers, when at the extremity of their strength, repeatedly felt that there was one more member than could actually be counted in the group. 
Long before Shackleton, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a similar experience. And this is quote from Daniel chapter 3. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Yet I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And Calisos continues, he says, such is for us the meaning of Jesus our Savior. He is the one who walks always beside us when we are at the extremity of our strength, who is with us in the wilderness of ice or in the furnace of fire. To each of us at the time of our greatest loneliness or trial, this word is said. Let me repeat that. To each of us at the time of our greatest loneliness or trial, this word is said, you are not alone. You have a companion, and it's Jesus, your friend. You can keep the icon postcards. Take that home with you. Put it wherever you'd like. Let me close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you are our friend, that we can know the the nearness, the joy of your companionship, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that the gospel is so much more than transactions. It's a friendship. Lord, would you help us to unlearn things that are ungospel and give us fresh eyes for that news which is truly good that you're speaking to us, to our souls, through your word, by your spirit, and through each other as friends. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.